This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke 13, 10 through 17. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. My sermon title went through uh, many changes this week. I started out with a sermon title, Sometimes You Just Gotta Break the Rules. And somebody called me out on my grammar. Gotta is not proper. So we didn't put that in the bulletin. Um, later, um, the idea came along, going rogue for righteousness. That's the one that made it into the bulletin. By the end of the week, I had a different title, if anybody cares, because this is a discovering Jesus, and it means discover Jesus in order to follow. I changed it in my Word document to going rogue with Jesus. Okay? So what's the point? Well, you know the point, right? You know what going rogue means. It means breaking the rules at some level. Tradition, perhaps. Coloring outside the lines. Going rogue. Being revolutionary. Jesus routinely was seen as revolutionary. He was frequently coloring outside the lines, breaking tradition. And sometimes you weren't quite sure whether it was tradition or actually the Torah he was breaking, but... He was outside the lines. And we have another example of that here when Jesus is teaching. But in order to understand the passage as well as we could, um, we might need to step back into the place and, shall I say, recreate it. So here's my attempt, my best attempt to recreate what happened on that day. First of all, uh, Jesus is invited probably by the leader or the ruler of the synagogue to be the rabbi teacher for the day. This is not the first time, right? Jesus has been invited apparently before. Uh, there was one particular occasion in Nazareth in his hometown where he was teaching and he used a passage of scripture, a scroll from Isaiah, to refer to himself and it outraged people. Are you actually calling yourself? Yes, I am, right? It was that kind of moment for Jesus. He appeared in the synagogue over and again. But what's interesting is he appeared in the synagogue apparently early, but not late in the ministry. 
For instance, this is chapter 13, okay, of Luke. Chapter 24 is where Luke ends. In chapter 13 right here, it's the last time he's ever seen in the synagogue as Luke writes the narrative. Apparently, there came a point, this is speculation, but it seems pretty accurate. There came a point where Jesus was known for going rogue, for coloring outside the lines in the context even of synagogue worship. Perhaps for that reason, he was no longer in the synagogue, or maybe it was his own choice. No matter, he's invited by the rabbi, the teacher, to be the rabbi teacher, or what is often called the ruler of or the president of the synagogue invited him. When he invited him to come in, he invited him to step into a tradition. A synagogue was a place of worship. It wasn't the temple, so no sacrifices took place there. But the synagogue was, well, they were scattered all around outside Jerusalem in Israel, away from the temple. And they were places of worship, but they were also places primarily of study. So during the week, uh, young men who studied with the rabbi would be there at the synagogue, either preparing to be rabbis themselves or just studying the Torah. So it was an educational institution, as well as what we might call a church, right? A place of worship. What was very important about the synagogue is that it was about teaching. It was about teaching the Torah. That's what it was really there for. And worship was a part of that. So on this particular occasion, what did it look like? Well, it probably looks something like this. There was a place for Jesus as a rabbi to sit when he taught. And the congregation was kind of like that, around and in front of and sort of looking at the rabbi teacher this way. Again, there were certain things in this synagogue, but it wasn't the elaborate ornate symbols that you find in the temple. And on that occasion, as in most places around this Jewish culture, they would have had a structure of worship, an order of worship. As a matter of fact, um, historians think that the earliest order of worship in the Christian church was almost a template from the synagogue worship. It was just Christianized. Now, there's a bit of a dispute, like on anything, exactly how that order went. But even today, in the more liturgical churches, the order of worship is rather similar to what we believe the order of worship was in the synagogue. For instance, it would go something like this. There would be a formal greeting from the president of the synagogue or the ruler of the synagogue. So like Rob this morning was the ruler of the synagogue and he greeted everybody at the beginning, right? And welcome to to worship. Then following that, there would have been an opening prayer, which we routinely have. Somewhere following that, and usually pretty close on the heels of that, would actually be the reading of a creed-like, what we call creeds. Actually, we were supposed to read the creed after the second song, but the president of the synagogue, Rob, forgot. So we'll get to that later. Creed was actually in there this morning. And then we, we, would, we would see in this structure of worship prayers, you know, like prayers of intercession on behalf of the people, prayers inviting or invoking the presence of God. Those would be prayers at a particular point in the worship service. And then there would be the reading of the Torah, a very important thing. The Torah was read, and symbolically, when read or after read, it was held up so everybody could see it was the Torah that was read. And following that, the teaching. The rabbi would sit and teach from the Torah, and then they would have a benediction. Sounds rather familiar. 
somewhat the way we do it. Now enter Jesus into that rather formal worship structure. It's his turn invited by the person who's the president of the synagogue to sit in the teacher's chair and teach the people. So Jesus sits in the rabbi's chair to teach the Torah. And I don't know exactly how it went, but I think it's probably true that it went something like this. Jesus said the text that was read today means, and he starts in on an interpretation of the text. And then partway through his teaching, his sermon, he stops and he says, woman, come up here. I mean, right in the middle of the teaching. You, you can imagine what the crowd's at. What? what? What's going on? He's supposed to teach. Come up here. Now, I don't know when he noticed the woman. Maybe he noticed her long before the teaching. Maybe he planned it all along. Maybe he just noticed her for the first time when he looked out. But what we do know is that the woman was pretty obvious. She was stooped over. Or to put it another way, she spent her time looking at the ground, turning from the left to the right to observe the world, but never upright. She was twisted and turned down, afflicted in her body. It would be like today if I was looking out the window at the people coming in and I saw this woman coming across the parking lot to worship. Jesus might have seen her before the teaching, but certainly during the teaching. And he says, woman, come forward. So that woman, very conspicuously, can you imagine being her? She's not one who came up and read the Torah. It's no doubt she tried to be inconspicuous. But now the conspicuous moment, woman come up here, and she walks up, head down, body turned to Jesus. And he says to her, in the middle of his teaching, Woman, this is your day. Today, you're healed. He touched her. She stood up. Now look, this was not a big miracle healing place with the televangelist where you wonder if the person who stands up there is authentic. They knew her story. They knew her from the small community. They watched her day after day stoop down. They knew she couldn't stand, and when Jesus touched her, she stood up. Imagine the joy of the crowd. It's recorded in the text. They were overwhelmed with joy. They were delighted. And what happens? What happens is the synagogue leader, the president of the synagogue, basically stands up and says, this can't be. I don't know where he was. I don't know if Jesus was sitting in the seat of the rabbi and the normal teacher and the president of the synagogue was sitting in a seat like there with the congregation. Or maybe he was sitting behind Jesus. I, I wonder. Whenever Jesus did that, he stood up and he said, this can't go on. 
There are six days for healings to take place. Healing is work. And you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. Why? Because it's work and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Do you get the logic, my friends? This is out of bounds. You know what's interesting? The text does not say that he addressed Jesus. He didn't turn, according to the text, and look at him and say, you can't do this. He looked at the crowd and said, this can't be done. But in response, Jesus turns directly to him and says, you hypocrites. You and all who follow you, hypocrites. Here's what I want you to know and everybody else to know. The Torah has all kinds of regulations as it relates to work. I get that. And work, defined as work, is frequently done on the Sabbath for the purpose of others. Which one of you doesn't take his donkey out of the stall and lead him to water, which is work? You ever led a donkey to water? And put him back in his stall. Which of you doesn't do that? Tell me, who is it that doesn't do that among you? Of course they did it. Cruelty to animals was one of the things in the Torah that was repugnant. You, you, you were not cruel to animals. On another occasion, when Jesus is talking about Sabbath regulations, he says to those who criticize him, if your donkey falls in the ditch or if your neighbor's donkey falls in the ditch and can't get out, aren't you going to help the donkey and your neighbor? Of course you are. And isn't that work? Of course it is. So Jesus, in effect, says, you're absolutely inconsistent and you're hideous hypocrites. Because here's what I'm doing. On this day, on the Sabbath, he might have said, or could have said, on this day of all days, I'm going to touch somebody and heal them. Because I'm about people, not rules. And the Torah's the same. And so he touches her and he heals her, of course, and the people are amazed and they rejoice. And I'd like to have seen the face of the synagogue leader after that was all over. He was certainly put in his place, and uh, the day's over. So now the day's over. What do we learn from it? First of all, um, let's remind ourselves that every ailment, right, physical ailment, is not the direct result of some sort of satanic power or pressure. It's just the result of generic sin because sin has twisted our world and thus disease is a part of it and it doesn't mean you're culpable when you have a disease, but it means that the reason you have a disease is because of twistedness and sin. But on this occasion, it seems like Jesus is basically saying, there's a real problem here. Satan's been oppressing her for 18 years. She's a child of Abraham, and I'm going to release her. This is not her fault. Be free. I notice in terms of personal application, something that really struck me full force. It's quite possible, my conjecture, I admit, that the ruler of the synagogue is rebuking Jesus out of jealousy. 
He doesn't like it, perhaps. Jesus is the teacher who's visiting and he's showing him up. And so his immediate response is, instead of allowing for the moment to glorify God, I'll find something wrong with what he did. I'll criticize the teacher. The reason it struck me so much is because I've done that. Haven't you? Haven't you been overly critical on occasion? And maybe even called out the right thing for the purpose of putting somebody in their place rather than allowing the power and presence of God to be manifest? All because of jealousy? Well, I have. And we can do it. Second thing that strikes me um, that seems to apply to our lives is this. It's really easy to criticize the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and all those kinds of people. Why? Because, quite frankly, the New Testament sets it up that way. Right? You look at the New Testament and you realize those are the bad guys for the most part. They're always giving Jesus a hard time and he's always calling them out. Duh, that's easy to figure out. So what do we do? Immediately we say to ourselves, yeah, there they go again. Here's their problem. It's legalism. Yeah, here they go again. I'm glad I'm not like them. Let me remind you of something. These people, among all the people in first century Israel held the Word of God in very high honor. Such high honor that at least some of the records indicate that the scribes who copied the Torah for all these various synagogues so each of them could have a scroll, when they were copying those sacred scriptures and they got to the name of God, it said that they would set aside the quill they were using for a brand new one and a brand new holder of ink and dip it in to write the name of God before proceeding again. That's that's some of the tradition that's been unveiled in terms of their approach to the sacredness of the Word. These people were committed to the Word of God. Does that sound familiar, my friends? If you were to do a survey of people in Bloomington and ask them what is one of the characteristics of ECC, I'm not sure what all we get back, right? But I guarantee you that one of the things we would get back is that those people really, they're really into the Bible. They really believe the Bible. And it might be a criticism from them. It might be a compliment from them, but it would be true, wouldn't it? In this tradition that we call evangelical, the Word of God is central. I take up most of the time every Sunday morning teaching the Word of God. And I tell you now, if it wasn't for the teaching of the Word of God, I wouldn't be up here. I've got nothing to say. All I want to do is to try to figure out what the Word says to us and instruct us and help us live by it. And that's exactly what 
the rulers of the synagogue were all about. Exactly what we're all about. Now here's the thing. Sin is insidious. And so what happens with people who are absolutely committed to Word of God? The insidious nature of sin, among other things, does this. We're serious about our interpretation of the Word of God. We're absolutely certain. We're not changing for culture. We're not changing for influence. We know what the Word of God says, and here it is. And we fail to remember that it is our interpretation of the Word of God. There's no way for you to be committed to the Word of God and to study the Word of God and, like me, preach the Word of God without self being in the middle of it. And without your interpretation and my interpretation being part of it. It's just there, my friends. Which is why I tremble every single Sunday. At what point is the Word of God being communicated or is Bob's interpretation being communicated? The problem is we all interpret. And we do it as best we can. But it's our interpretation. And sometimes it's wrong. And our interpretation becomes a tradition. And that tradition can block the power and presence of God, just like we saw in this text. So how does it happen? Where does it happen? Where has it happened for you? I'm going to assume, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, that most of you who are here are Christian and have been Christians for quite a long time. I know some of you have been Christians for 20, 30 or more years. My question, especially for you and for me, is this. When's the last time that your interpretation of Word of God has been radically challenged? And because of that challenge, changed. I want to suggest that it's a sign of a healthy Christian when his or her interpretation of Word of God has been radically challenged and sometimes changed. You know I'm not a radical this way. I don't mean to go off the rails. But my friends, it's true. We do it all the time. So what area of your understanding of the Word of God are you open to being challenged in in order to discover what the Word is really saying? Back to the text. The Sabbath was sacred. Absolutely sacred. The Torah made that abundantly clear. But Jesus says, you've taken what is righteous and holy and good and perfect and you have turned it into something else 
with your tradition, which starts with an interpretation of an absolutely sacred text. Do you see yourself anywhere in this picture? If you don't, I'm sorry for you. Because you should. I, I say all that and that's the hard stuff, right? <laughs> that's like the dentist drilling the tooth. Um, that's making us feel uncomfortable and making us wonder what in the world the preacher is talking about. Is he really a heretic? Well, you knew I was a little off the rails, but not as far as you think. That's a hard part. You know, here's, here's the wonderful part I want to end with. Back to the story. Jesus is teaching. He's just doing the work. He's committed to the Word of God. And He did this, by the way, all the time. Walking and teaching and talking and working in the middle of tiredness. In the middle of teaching. In the middle of walking. He saw a need and He stopped. And He healed. He touched people. And He healed. That's because for Jesus, teaching wasn't just about words is about transformation and healing. It's almost like he couldn't help himself. (laughs) He taught and he healed. So, what about you? There may be some of you who have experienced incredible legalism in your life. either institutional or family or quite frankly just dispositional. You're just wired that way. And can I borrow the image? The legalism has just twisted you down. You can't even look up. The sin of legalism has twisted you. And you need to be healed. Here's what I want to say. Jesus is here today. And he wants to heal you. He wants to set you free. That's what Jesus does. Whatever your condition, my friends, he's here. He wants to touch you. He wants to heal you. He wants to set you free. You may have to ask. We call it confession. You may have to beg like some people in the Bible did. Whatever you do, come to Jesus. Be touched be healed. To put it in another way, let him lift you up and set you free. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. Um, We thank you that you even allow us to step into the distribution of your word, fallible as we are and inclined to mess it up as easily as we do. 
you still, you still let us do it. You ask us to interpret it, to allow um, your word to penetrate our hearts, and then you give us the grace to follow. So we thank you for that. But we pray, O oh Lord, uh, especially today, that you will open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see more clearly that you will remind us of all of our propensities to some form of legalism, whether it's judging others or even holding a standard for ourselves that's unrealistic, or whether it's interpreting the Word of God in such a way that doesn't distribute grace but brings slavery. We pray, Lord, that you will free us from that. We thank you that you are here today. We actually believe you're present, Lord. Of course, not visibly, like you once were, but you're present by the power of the Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, you're just as able and willing to heal as you were when you walked the earth. So we pray you will do that today. Perhaps especially, Lord, as we gather together and worship you in in this wonderful thing called the Lord's Supper, that in the midst of that sacrament, people will be healed. We thank you for that grace of healing, which we know comes from you. And we pray that you will demonstrate it to us by faith today. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.